Hello, UCI Conversation listeners. This is your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and today is a very special edition of UCI Conversations because my guest is one of the top leaders on our campus, Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor Enrique Lavernia. Professor Lavernia earned his undergraduate mechanical engineering degree from Brown University in 1982 and received his material science PhD from MIT in 1986. From 1987 to 2002, approximately 15 years, he was here at UCI, where he advanced from assistant professor to chancellor's professor. And then from 2002 to 2013, he was at UC Davis holding various positions such as provost, executive vice chancellor, and dean. In 2015, in July, he returned to UCI in his current roles as provost, executive vice chancellor, and leader of the EJL Material Science Research Lab, which is his lab here on campus, and he's a distinguished professor. His publications, awards, acknowledgments, and affiliations are amazing and way too many to list. He has published over 600 journal and 200 conference publications. Wow. He is very well liked and respected on campus, and I know that because I've checked it out. <laughs> Welcome, Professor Lavernia. How are you today? Fine, Kevin. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for being interested in uh, interviewing me. You're very welcome, sir. Let's just start out with, Professor, from doing my background research about you, I see and can tell that you have amazing passion and fire for learning and higher education. It's in your DNA. Have you ever allowed yourself to think, how did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, almost on a daily basis, Kevin. Almost on a daily basis. I just feel incredibly blessed to be able to work at a place where I'm surrounded by incredibly smart people, energetic students. The energy is there every year. We get new students, we get new faculty, and I just feel really fortunate to be able to do what I do for a living. Excellent. A little bit reminds me of Lennon and McCartney, the famous songwriting duo for the Beatles, that their producers said that they just had a little bit something that made it a little bit easier for them when they had to get over humps. Obviously, you know, way back going to MIT, I mean, that's not just your run-in-the-mill university, that's a top university. What was it about you that got you there? Was, was it just literally sheer hard work, or do you feel like, you know, I saw some of my, you know, colleague students that they had the same aspirations, but you're here and, and, and maybe they haven't done that. Well, that's a... <laughs> that's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> that's a complicated question. But so it, perhaps it'll be helpful to tell you about my journey to MIT because mm-hmm. it was not planned. I did my undergraduate at Brown, and sometime my sophomore year, a professor invited me to do research in the lab. And I was both flattered and surprised. I was a pretty good student, but I was not a straight-A student. I worked hard, that I did, and I decided to stay for graduate school, uh, the encouragement of some of my professors, so I applied for graduate school at Brown and I got in, so I started graduate school my senior year. And so I thought I was all set, and I ended up as a teaching assistant in one of my courses my senior year, a course that I had taken um, earlier. And that particular professor, Sheldon White, I still remember him, 
essentially called me in and said, you know, you should really apply to the graduate program at MIT. And I said, why? I'm here. I'm enjoying it. He said, well, it's a really big program. There will be more opportunities for you. So I applied, never thought that I'd get in and never thought that I'd go there. And long story short, I went there and I was terrified because I had left a very comfortable mm. environment where I knew everybody, I knew the labs, I knew the faculty to this massive engineering school. And so, absolutely, I was terrified. And so, my response to that was to work like heck to make sure that I measured up. Mm. And um, that, that in my background uh, for appreciating the value of a degree in life, um, mm. just kept me focused mm. and working hard. Mm. Mm. Did you always know engineering would be what you would do? Pretty early in high school, uh, mathematics, science sort of interested me. I wouldn't say they came easy, but they came easier than other topics. Mm. And so mm. I was pretty set on engineering with a vague notion of what that really meant, like most students, right? Mm. You think you want to be an engineer. But as I got into the career, I uh, enjoyed it, so I decided I was in the right place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your journey, you originally were born in Cuba. Do you have memories of, of being there? So, you know, it's interesting that you ask. I was born in Cuba, and my family left in 1965, which is ironic, because that's the year that UCI was founded. I often look back and, and wonder about that coincidence. My family was fleeing the Castro regime and left in a hurry with nothing, uh, essentially, except their degrees. My mother was a university professor and my father was an engineer. We were not wealthy, but they were professionals. And on my wall, if you look above my desk, there's a list of the items that they were allowed to take with them when they left, uh, with me and my brother, who's four years older than me. Landed in this great country and grew up in Puerto Rico where I did my high school and then I went to school at Brown. And then you migrated and got to MIT. How was that? Quite rigorous and challenging the whole way? or You know, the environment at MIT in those early days, probably not unlike other engineering schools, was one of swim or sink. So as a graduate student, you really were on your own. Very competitive, um, very cutthroat, up until you passed your preliminary and qualifying exams. Once you got over that hump, then it was a fabulous place to be because of the resources, because of the um, number and variety of intellectual giants in different fields that you could just go and talk to. And I was blessed with an amazing PhD advisor who made it all possible and, and doable, and who nurtured a group that was by and large very supportive of everyone else, unlike other research groups. In fact, uh, that's his photo above my desk. He's now uh, passed away, uh, 87 years old. Mm -hmm. But um, it was a great journey in hindsight, but not one that was easy in the beginning. And it was that Professor Grant? Correct. Your, can you describe Oh, goodness. Him? <laughs> Uh, you know, in many ways, Nick is, is one of my heroes. He, um, he was tough, but he loved his students. And uh, you knew that you could always get in to see him, regardless of how many important people were lined up to see him. His um, claim to fame is his advisor 
Professor Chipman was part of the Manhattan Project, mm. uh, and so uh, that was uh, Nick's PhD advisor. So he was sort of a well known uh, around the world, and very friendly, loved people, always wanted to know how you were doing, wanted to know how your family was doing. Good sense of humor, but tough. One of my favorite phrases as I got to be more senior um, in the group. And I would argue with him about a technical point. He would look at me and he would say, Enrique, I have forgotten more things than you have ever learned, which of course <laughs> was true. And that was the end of the argument. He was a great role model for me. Yeah, excellent. Enrique, when you were younger, is this true for you? You know, Things are exciting. You're learning new things. It's a wonder. And as we get older, sometimes become more realistic. Have you changed as you <laughs> become older and seasoned, or is it a balance? You know, one of the great things about this job is how almost on a daily basis you encounter new situations, new people, new challenges. So that hunger for learning is something that I continue to have. Of course, you get older, you get more patient, you have the wisdom of the years and the wisdom to be able to deal with difficult circumstances with a proper equilibrium. But I think overall that fascination about people, about circumstances is something that I still enjoy on a daily basis here. Fantastic. If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my very special guest today is UCI Provost, Executive Vice Chancellor, and Distinguished Materials Science Professor Enrique Lavernia. Here, Enrique discusses his responsibilities and vision in his roles as Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor. Now back to the interview. Can you describe for us, many people wonder, provost and executive vice chancellor, what does it mean to be provost for you? So I'd like to begin with a description that Chancellor Gilman always provides when he's describing me, and I'm essentially the second in command. I sit in the box with him. And the two titles mean two different things. As provost, I'm the chief academic officer, which essentially means that all the academic deans, all the deans report to me. As executive vice chancellor, it means that I have a role in overseeing the rest of the vice chancellors in the budget, which is the budget for the entire campus. Okay. So are all the deans part of their job description is academic dean? Correct. Okay. Obviously, you can't know what all the qualifications are for all these different disciplines, all the different schools. <laughs> I'm sure you're always learning. I guess you have to depend on them. They're communicating to you, but yet you're working to keep the standards high, I would imagine. How does that work? So, first of all, let me start by saying we have an amazing group of deans. I'm constantly impressed by not just their quality, their standards, but also by how well they work together. The deans provide regular updates and regular reports. There's an annual evaluation where they report on accomplishments, on the students' um, research, diversity goals and accomplishments, fundraising. And so on a regular basis, we monitor and work with them to make sure that they're successful at, in the areas that they need to be successful. This is a difficult time. To be an administrator in general, but in particular deans because of their commitment to fundraising, which places every dean in a situation where his or her schedule is often impacted by meetings with external constituencies. And that is because 
the university needs to garner external resources to accomplish the lofty goals that we have. And I'm very pleased with how well we are doing as a campus. I should note, because one of the um, questions that you sent to me dealt about things that I'm really proud of, and it relates to the dean, so let me bring it up. Mm -hmm. So as I sit back, in the last four years, we have hired 13 new deans, six new vice chancellors, campus council, chief of police, and director of the museum. And in every one of those searches, we've recruited our top candidate. And I think that's remarkable because, A, it's really hard to do, but I think what happens is when we get them to campus and they see the energy and the environment, we get our top choice. Great. Has the job changed from when you came here July 2015? How have things evolved? You know, I mean, unfortunately, what appears to be the um, lack of support from the state government over the years continues to be the case. And so it's become increasingly difficult to make the case to the state of the importance of higher education. And so funding for the university has been a challenge and continues to be a challenge. At a time where our goals, our ambitions have increased, where the pressures on us to admit more students from the state of California have increased. And so that continues to be there and it's not a surprise, that's the circumstance we've been living under for the last couple of years. And our philosophy has been that we're going to own our own future. We're not going to wait for the state to bail us out. And that is part of the goal underlying the capital campaign. Do you think in terms of enrollment, have we topped out? Are we going to continue to grow? What do you see? So if you look at our enrollment goals, we're about where we want to be at the undergraduate level. For the next couple of years, the strategic plan is to increase our PhD students and our professional students. And so that's where we're putting the emphasis now. And is that a goal UC-wide or? No, that's a goal that's particular to us. We grew really, really fast in the last few years. And when we look at the balance between undergraduate students and graduate students, it's really important that we keep a healthy balance for uh, the integrity of the pedagogy of the institution. And graduate students is where we need to make some. We have been making progress, but we need to continue to do so. Mm In terms of your duties compared to the chancellor, do you guys divide and conquer, or you know, can you describe that a little bit? Sure. So, it, I mean, I, I must tell you, I've worked with uh, uh, several chancellors, and Howard's the best chancellor I work with, and I don't say that because I'm working with him now. He's a great partner, and he makes my job so much easier. In general, I tend to take care of the institution, whereas the chancellor is sort of the outward-facing chancellor. He does that extremely well. But of course, strategic decisions that occur on a regular basis, I consult with him, make sure we're lined up. Critical hires, of course, I consult with him, make sure we're lined up. And so it's a partnership where it works well because he provides a vision and an outreach to the community that I think we've never had at this campus that's paying dividends, not just financially, but in terms of reputation and engagement, and allows me to concentrate on the issues that come up every day at the campus. Mm. 
where do we fall in terms of the UC schools across the state? It sure seems like, as I've watched this university turn into a global contender, is that a conscious goal? Is it just part of what we do? Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. It's a, really um, a, a deliberate effort and strategy to bring the university to the next level in terms of impact and resources. If you look at the strategic plan, first in class, research that matters, engagement with the community, financial sustainability are, are pillars. They all reflect this plan that we're in the middle of uh, bringing UCI to its true potential. One of the things that's different about UCI that I very much appreciate and something we talk about, we have great respect for our sister campuses. Berkeley is a world-class campus, UCLA is a great campus, but our goal at UCI is to be the best UCI we can be. And that gives us a certain intellectual freedom to do things that we think are right and to leverage the resources of our community. Orange County is what I call our secret weapon, community that supports us, Mm -hmm. partners with us, and not just financially, but strategically. And I think the results show that it's working. So while people always like to rank us, and we've been up and coming in terms of enrollments and applications, the fact is we've got great campuses across the UC, but our goal is not to become another campus. You had a first career here at UCI and now a second (laughs) career. Can you name a few of your most proud moments? Well, I mean, certainly when I finished at MIT and I was a postdoc, decided I really wanted to go into academia. And the West Coast was really the place I wanted to come. So the huge moment was getting that call offering me the job at UCI. I came and I interviewed and I thought things went well, but you never know. And so that was a big moment when I, uh, when I came. And being here over the years, like every academic, you get recruited to other universities, bigger names. But at some level, it was sort of the DNA of the place that kept me here. Great colleagues, not a lot of political fights, just I got to do the work that I wanted and in the environment that I wanted and a beautiful place to be and so never left mm-hmm. and um, so that was a big moment for mm-hmm. me deciding to leave Irvine was a difficult difficult um, decision I was department chair here I was certainly didn't have in my plans becoming a dean like every one of these academic jobs that I've had mm-hmm. I can't tell you that i thinking about the next step because I'm trying to do what, I, what I'm what i doing well and that's the bandwidth that I have is to try to do it 110%. And so Davis first approached me in um, 2000 or 2001. Great colleague that I know up there um, called me and put my name in for Dean and they approached me and it was sort of, I was surprised. Um, and I actually said no. I was happy where I was and things for going well. I hadn't thought about becoming dean. That search failed and they came again the second year. And things had changed here and I thought maybe it's time to look for a different opportunity. We had two young children and Davis. It's a great environment for young kids so that certainly helped. And so we went to UC Davis and that was, uh, but it was hard uh, to leave here. 
I remember I was actually living across the street at the time and uh, how UCI used to be such a sleepy school. Absolutely. And the, the shopping center, <laughs> the university shopping center across the street. Do you remember the parking lot yes. used to be empty? Yes, yes. And in fact, uh, you know, it was almost as a commuter school, right? Yeah, the weekends, yeah. It was empty. Totally. Which initially when I first arrived was a bit of a surprise because, of course, in Boston, you know, it's just right. filled with students all the time. Yeah. But I was focused in building my lab and my students. Yeah. And so, you know, it was what it was. Mm-hmm. The community, it was funny because there was no engagement with the community. It's not right. bad, not good, just none. Right. Uh, we were busy building the university and yeah. that's what the focus was. Mm-hmm. As I left Irvine, and of course I remained in touch with the folks here, colleagues. When I was dean at Davis, well, the deans meet regularly across the system, so I knew what was going on at Irvine, and it was amazing to watch the school just take a big, big, dramatic increase in romance, reputation, research, name it, and it was great to watch from a distance. And so when the opportunity came, and again, I was not looking to move. I had announced that I was going to step down and go on sabbatical, to Germany where we had been on sabbatical before. And Irvine, the search committee called me and Julie and, and I, my wife, I said, you know, that's a place we always liked. Who knows? And <laughs> no. the rest is history. No. Uh, sabbatical in Germany, was there research there that you were going to work on? So in 1997, I had a Humboldt fellowship and and my wife and I who's also a faculty member spent uh, the better part of 97 living and working at the Max Planck Institute in, uh, in Stuttgart. Can you briefly describe what a Humboldt fellowship is? So there's a society, it's an honorary society, an honorific society in Germany called the Humboldt Society that tends to fund researchers from overseas to come to research with German researchers. It's an honor to get these fellowships and so there's a junior Humboldt and a senior Humboldt. So I had the junior Humboldt in 97 and had applied for the senior Humboldt when I was finishing my deanship. And so that was the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest is UCI Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor Enrique Lavernia. In early 2015, he was a dean at UC Davis, but possibility came knocking and UCI enters the picture again regarding his current senior positions here on campus. Here, Enrique shares the process. So you looked at the possibility of coming back to UCI. Was there a crystallized idea of like what solidified it for you? It's like, I want to do this. I'm going to go for it. Sure. It was the first telephone conversation I had with Howard Gilman. And did you know him from... I did not. We'd never met in person. That was the first time we connected, and it was part of the interview. Yeah. In fact, funny story, when the search committee decided that they wanted to interview me, which the dates, I had already agreed to go to this meeting in Spain, in Madrid. And David Belshaw, who ran the search firm, said, you know, you can't change it. I said, David, I can't. It's a commitment that I've made. Not only do I have meetings, my son is living in Spain and we're supposed to go there. I said, let me do the meeting via Skype. Oh, don't do that. Terrible idea, those things never work. I said, David, I don't have any choice. So I distinctly remember sitting in 
on a chair in the hotel room with the windows closed and my laptop. And I did the interview via Skype, and that was followed by, which I thought went well, although it's really hard to interview in a Skype environment because when they ask you a question, you can throttle your answer based on body language. Well, you can't see that because it's too big of a committee. Mm. in a Skype screen. Uh, uh. So that was a bit of a challenge, but enjoyed the interview, and that was followed by a conversation with the Chancellor. And what was it about what he said that... Uh, and this is like, so you're considering taking position with this gentleman, and you haven't met him before. So. Right. But I had also learned the importance of the Chancellor-Provost relationship when I was asked to step in at Davis. Right. And so I knew that was a really important, that there was some chemistry... I liked his approach, easy to talk to. One of the first questions that I asked him was about engaging the community. And sure enough, that was part of his grand plan, which is born out, right? And which makes great sense. Coming from a school like USC, in many ways, in my view, is ideal for this time at the campus. This place here. Right. Yeah. Because USC is very good at external relations, working with the community, bringing in uh, resources. So I thought it's perfect background for a chancellor to come in. He's been provost for a year, so he knows the job of provost, which is also very um, helpful. And so that was um, that was an easy conversation. I said, you know, I could really enjoy working with this person. Mm-hmm. Any quote from that discussion? Oh, just God. that really stuck. You know, maybe there's not. Yeah. Not that I recall. It's, yeah, um, just the overall. Right. It's just his. He's very genuine in his conversations and outreach, and so it's easy to have a conversation with him. Does your job change from week to week, from month to month? Are you working on new and different things all the time, or is it? You know, is there the budget season? How does it work? So there's a few things that are regularly scheduled that happen every year. Uh, Budget meetings is one of them. I'm about to start what will amount to 38 individual budget meetings with every unit on campus to talk about their priorities, their their asks, um, issues that come up. So that comes up. Howard has this practice which is unique to the UC system, which is fantastic, where every year... We both go to every single school and have an open meeting with all faculty and all staff for an hour and a half just to hear from them. No canned speech, no PowerPoints, what's going on, questions about anything. It's, it's an incredible time investment that's really worthwhile because that's when we really find out. We talked about keeping an eye on schools and mm. how things are going. Mm. That's probably one of the most effective methods because when things, issues are bubbling up in an academic unit, we hear about them at that meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're the only UC that does that. In fact, when I share that practice with my fellow provosts, they think we're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worked really well. So we're about to start those. In fact, this week or next week, I think we have our first one. So there's things that happen on a regular basis, such as those academic personnel. So part of my role is as chief academic officer is to go over all of the faculty promotions and tenure and all of that. We have a, in the UC system a very elaborate faculty evaluation system, which I think is excellent, but it is uh, incredibly time-consuming. And so that's ongoing all the time. 
Other issues that I work on consistently, faculty recruitment and retentions, when things come up at the unit, my pledge to the academic deans is if a faculty member will be impressed by talking to a chancellor or a provost, we're here. We'll meet with them. And so that happens on mm -hmm. a regular but consistent basis. And then all the other things that happen that just issues that come up. Case in point, the recent virus out of China that's yeah. leading to a, what could be a pandemic. So we've now had a meeting alerted. There's a team headed by our folks in the health sciences to start preparing, analyzing, preparing plans should things really uh, become mm -hmm. worse. So things like that that crop up that we need to Mm -hmm. deal with and something like that. Gotcha. What about the new UC president search? Are you involved at all with that? Or? So only peripherally in the mm -hmm. sense that when we have meetings at the office of the president, the system-wide group of provosts, we meet every month. Mm -hmm. Every other month is in person, typically at the office of the president. We get briefings on how things are going mm -hmm. from the system-wide provost, Michael Brown, uh, with whom I've had a great working relationship. But other than that, we hear from the chancellor updates as to what's going on. Gotcha. How about, you know, there's always new things happening. It's a dynamic school. Anything that's caught your attention lately that's like, wow. Oh, absolutely. So we've had a recent uh, meeting with our vice chancellor for research. When we set up the five-year promote Cargonica, fabulous um, addition to the campus. I had the privilege of working with him when he was at NSF. Just terrific. He's really made a huge difference for the entire campus. So recently learned from him that we are very close to our $500 million five-year goal, whereas just a couple of years ago it was $200 million. I mean, that's remarkable. At a time when there's constrained federal resources, it's not like the federal budgets are all increasing for for basic research, mm -hmm. our faculty are just doing a phenomenal job. And you stand back and say, on top of everything they're doing, teaching more students, there's more service requirements, there's more things they need to do, and on top of that, they're bringing in more research. It's just remarkable. Mm. I know you're passionate, you have a fire. Can you put your finger on what's the most fun about the job? <laughs> do you get to have fun? <laughs> It sounds like it sounds like you have a lot of fun, but that, yeah, anything come to mind. You know, Kevin, I love people. I always I have. That's part of what I think makes my life rich. All sorts of people, regardless of what they do, and I'm just surrounded by amazing staff. Watch them work, dedicated, not because they have to, but and that's across campus. You know, you walk around and you see staff at, in departments just working really hard for the students to. You sit back and you watch the dedication and the energy that people put at all levels. Vice chancellors, the same thing. They're passionate. They try to do it right. Mm -hmm. And it's just a convergence of talent that, yeah. you know, it's amazing. It is amazing. I hesitate to say this, but it's like Disneyland for <laughs> knowledge. It's one of the reasons I'm here. It's like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. The students, yeah. the people are working hard and very talented. Yeah. One of the practices that I introduced when I arrived, we have regular meetings with the deans. And we rotate those meetings so that we have, we change them from school to school. Mm 
-hmm. In the first 20, 30 minutes, the hosting dean gets to talk about anything they want, what they're doing in the school. It's a great opportunity, not just for me, but everybody around the table to learn about each school. And it never ceases to amaze me as we go, because we have everything here, education, law, medicine, yeah. nursing, yeah. name it. We've got everything. Yeah. Yeah. To go around, we recently had a meeting with Dean Hirsch, who's working on a new school of pharmacy. Mm -hmm. The proposal is almost ready. She's the founding dean, great hire. And as she hosted the meeting, she had at the table these pills, which of course were candy, that we were asked to prepare prescriptions on as a way for us to sort of appreciate what pharmacists do. And I thought, you know, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And what she said was that what inspired her to do that was a meeting we had in engineering where the engineering dean had Legos at the table when we first met. Yeah. So you learn all the time. You it's do. just fantastic. You are listening to UCI Conversations and a very special interview with Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor Enrique Lavernia. Here we switch gears and discuss his area of engineering expertise in material science and get a quick tour of the periodic table, which in case you forget, is the scientific listing of all the elements that exist in our universe. Yes, that universe in which we live. So here we go. Your original passion was material science. In fact, you know, I did bring a periodic table. <laughs> Art, is your area of expertise and interest somewhere on this table or is it all over the table? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, in some ways it's all over the table, uh -huh. but not completely. So my interest is primarily in metals, okay. right? Uh, aluminum, nickel, titanium, magnesium, copper, for structural applications. So there's material scientists who are interested in materials for electronic applications or biomedical applications. I'm interested in structures. Gotcha. Airplanes, vehicles, engines, turbines, things like that. So that's the metal system, but you tend to add many, if not most, of these elements mm -hmm. to metals to change their properties. So in that sense, I touch many of these. Gotcha. Do the rows and columns of the periodic table mean something? Can you describe that? No, oh, absolutely. They're organized and their physical and mechanical properties, physical and electronic properties is the way they're organized at the table. So the number underneath the element symbol will be the atomic mass, mm. uh, and that determines many of the physical properties of the atom, but also electronic properties, chemical properties. So it determines on whether one reacts with another, for example, one is soluble in another. Interesting. So it really is dynamically laid out. There's no, it's not randomly oh, laid out. No. <laughs> oh, God, no. From the unknowing person. Thanks for that tour. How about, Enrique, your book from, I guess it was published about 25 years ago now. Yeah. Is this book still, I don't know if relevant is the word, it has our knowledge far outgrown the book or just like the periodic table it's so there's a number of chapters in the beginning that are still very relevant and just for our listeners the name of the book is mm -hmm. spray atomization and deposition so the basics of heat transfer and solidification atomization those are fundamental mechanisms that are still relevant 
Now, if you go into characterization techniques, yes, these are relevant, but there's been quite a bit of work done in these areas since then. Physical and mechanical properties of the different materials, again, these are relevant, but there's been significant progress beyond what I report in this book at the time, uh, state-of-the-art. Uh, same thing with the composites part. But the fundamental mechanisms, the physics, if you will, those are still relevant. <laughs> what are you working on in your lab? Is there specific areas right now that you're, you're focusing? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So, so I've got a couple of really interesting projects going on. In one of them involves additive manufacturing, which is the idea that instead of creating a part, so the way a part was traditionally manufactured is you take a piece of metal that was made by a casting, for example, and you machine off parts of it to come up with your final structure, right? So you remove material from it. Right? Not a very efficient way when you think about it because you have to remove large amounts of material to create a complicated metal part, right? So a number of years ago... So it's a solid piece of metal that it's all uniform right. metal. Or even if it's a composite, you still do the same thing. You have to machine parts out to get the final composite. Gotcha. So a number of years back, the idea of creating a part by adding metal was developed. Originally used for polymers and then eventually applied to metals. And so what you're doing is laying down very small powders of metal while simultaneously melting them with a laser and at the same time having that process take place over a rapidly moving substrate to generate a complicated three-dimensional part. It's called additive manufacturing. And is, it three, is that 3D printing? Is Correct. that the definition of 3D pr Correct. printing? That's oh, okay. 3D printing. Okay. Additive manufacturing. It's got all sorts of names, but that's the idea. So we've got a program looking at one of the challenges with additive manufactured metals is the presence of residual stresses. Okay, That's related to the cooling of the molten metal as it cools down in the substrate and you're building a complicated part. So we're studying what governs the formation of those residual stresses, how can we control them, how can we minimize them. Uh, very interesting project. The other project that I'm working on, which I'm excited about, is a classic alloy of anything you see in any engine, any structure, any vehicle. When you say alloy, metal, is that alloy? Uh, uh, aluminum, iron, steel, mm -hmm. is essentially 90 to 95% of a single metal with all sorts of stuff added to it, right? So aluminum alloys are 95% aluminum with small amounts of copper, magnesium, zirconium that give it very different properties. Okay. That's been alloy design for probably 100 years. In the 80s, it was originally reported that if you mix certain number of elements, typically five, in the same amount, so none of them have a majority, mm -hmm. you can create an alloy called a high entropy alloy. Mm -hmm. It's called entropy because it's stabilized by the randomness of adding five mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. Not any elements, there's some thermodynamic requirements, mm -hmm. but a lot of the periodic table is involved in designing these high entropy metals and oxides. And now you've got a system 
that's unlike anything we've had before because it's not an aluminum alloy if it's just 20% aluminum and the other four elements are there. So it's a high entropy alloy. But the fascinating thing is that we're discovering all sorts of interesting mechanical and physical properties. And the periodic table is the limit. So if we mix these elements in the right proportion, under the right thermodynamic rules, it's a lot of fun because, A, you can get properties that are unachievable with normal alloys. Mm. And that not just mechanical, but electrical, chemical, biomedical. So there's just an explosion of research in Mm. this area. Mm. So we're studying that. Mm. And the other program we're working on involves magnesium. Magnesium and magnesium alloys have been around for a long time. There's two challenges with them, corrosion and strength. They tend to be not very strong. You can protect an alloy, if you will, with a coating, say, but corrosion is always an issue. So we're studying, it's a very basic research funded by the National Science Foundation. uh, Enrique, if it's not very strong, it seems like, well, why would you want to use it? Because there's certain applications where it's okay for it not to be so strong. Uh Can you give an example? You could use magnesium in a tennis racket. It doesn't need to be too strong, Mm -hmm. strong enough. You could use it in an engine component that's not load-bearing. It's lightweight, it works, put it in, it does its job. But if you could increase the strength of magnesium, it's really important because it's very low density. And this day and age with trying to manage energy, more energy-efficient engines, you want them to be as light as possible. Magnesium would be great. So increasing the strength of magnesium is an important technological goal. So we're studying, it's a very basic research, we're studying the formation of these crystal defects called twins, which has to do the way the atomic structure of magnesium deforms, and trying to understand their formation so that we can use those defects to increase strength. And it's sort of an unusual twist. We're getting some interesting results, but involves... Very high-resolution microscopy because you're looking at atoms and the interaction of crystal planes and how they deform under what conditions. And magnesium has a hexagonal crystal structure, which means unlike cubic in, say, steels or uh, face center cubic in aluminum, it's much more complicated. Mm. So it's a complicated problem. Mm. And is this being looked at at other labs around the world? Sure. There's a whole host, there's a whole community looking at magnesium, looking at twinning. But we've got this group of researchers. There's two of us from UCI. There's a faculty member from Santa Barbara. And there's a faculty member from Davis. And we've got this great team with different expertise working together. How do you find time to balance? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer not the that. Fir- not the first time that question's uh, been asked, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, You know, um, I don't know, Kevin. Mm. I I wonder at times. Um, I tend to get up really early. I tend to get up at 5, before 5. And my mind is typically really clear early in the morning. And so I try to concentrate on... First, I look at email, make sure there's no emergencies. (laughs) (laughs) Which can happen overnight, although when they happen overnight, sometimes I get a phone call. But then I can concentrate on working on papers, interacting with students. But I will tell you that the, 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 there's no secret. I'm, I'm blessed with amazing uh, PhD students, amazing postdocs. Um, I've got a few folks who've been with me for 25 years who just know how I think and, and make, allow me to do that part of my job. 
and they're patient because I try to meet with them on a regular basis during the week, but that's not always possible because things come up and uh, gotcha. they're very patient. When you hear about a lab, I would imagine just under the circumstances, your lab isn't as big as other labs. When you hear lab, all labs are not created equally. Is oh, absolutely. That, uh, right. A lab is really a generic term. I mean, you can almost use a lab to describe somebody who does computation, right? Where there's no real lab, it's just computers. So okay. somebody's lab and they do computation. So it's a general term that we use, uh, not necessarily singular. Many faculty use research facilities in different places around campus. But it's a general descriptor we use to describe a particular research group. Right, Lavernia's lab means my research group, rather than a physical location. Gotcha. We're coming to the end of our time. Enrique, can you please tell us about the Brilliant Future campaign? Yeah, I'm happy to, Kevin. I'm thrilled to be able to say a few words about it because I'm excited by how the campaign is going to allow us to really own our own future and build on the dreams and strategic goals for the campus. And it's centered around four topics. Advancing the American Dream, Transforming Healthcare and Wellness, Accelerating World-Changing Research, and Exploring the Human Experience. And when you look at those four topics, the first thing that strikes you is that they're consistent with the fact that we're a very broad university. We have great science, engineering, medicine, but we also have great humanities, social sciences, and professional schools, law and education. So we wanted to make sure that it's the impact of the entire enterprise, the entire community that we're seeking to really maximize. And the idea is to make sure that we leverage and inspire the community, not just Orange County, but really around the country and the world, to partner with us in doing things that we think are different, that we think are going to have a maximum impact. We're a state university, and so it's really part of our responsibility to work on topics that will have a meaningful impact on the community, and, and we're doing that. And I think inspiring people to come in and partner with us is part of what we do well and part of what we need to continue to do well. I think that we know that the partnership with the state is fraught with all sorts of questions and issues, and so we really need to continue to develop a plan that allows us to own our own future. And I think that'll inspire people to continue to do their best. Well, I'm really surprised to hear that the state is not funding UCs like it once did. And it just seems so short-sighted. Is it, we're sorry we just don't have the money? What is the mindset behind that? You know, that's, it's really hard. It's really hard to accept today's reality when you look at a state that envisioned and formulated and deployed a compact with higher education, which is largely responsible for the success that we've had in this state. But I think as the years have moved on, there's been a series of political decisions that have been made that have tied up the budget and pre-committed many of the resources to areas of the state over which then there is no control in making decisions. And higher education is not one of those areas. As a consequence, every year the state has demands on prisons, K-12, all sorts of issues that are already pre-engineered in terms of the resources that are allocated. And so we get to be considered for what is left. So that's a challenge. I don't think we have been effective ambassadors for the impact of the UC in the state. 
I think that years ago, that has changed, but years ago our view was, look, we're special, leave us alone, we do great research, just let us do our thing. Not recognizing that unless we make our case to the community on the impact of what we do here, therein lies the community engagement being so important. Right, right. It, it's difficult for the public to understand what's the benefit in me doing research in magnesium alloys? Why should they care? Well, I could argue I'm training the next generation of scientists and engineers who are going to graduate and be employed in the state and generate wealth and income, not just for themselves, but for the state. I could argue that patents get applied, technology gets deployed and implemented, right? But we haven't made that case as an institution mm -hmm. very well. Mm -hmm. And I think years of that have started to show it's the impact of that strategy. Mm -hmm. It's recognized, the Office of the President recognizes that. Um, there's tremendous talent up there. But it's hard in this day and age when the state is faced with other issues like homelessness. I mean, we've heard the new governor want to address what is a really important problem in the state, health care, right? So we recognize the competing forces that a state has. We would hope that we would be a higher priority, but understand that it's a trade-off. And so we at UCI have decided we're just going to own our own future and do what it takes to be successful. Enrique Lavernia, <laughs> Provost, Executive Vice Chancellor, Distinguished Professor, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's been remarkable. It's been a great journey, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin, again for your interest in uh, this interview, and really appreciate the time.